0: my name is Stuart Mitchell and I run the Ethical Marketing News website. Welcome to the Ethical Marketing Podcast. On this podcast, we will be featuring the second part of the interview with Ben Downing from the Havas Media Group. Apologies for this not coming out quite as quickly as I'd hoped following on from the first part of the interview it is entirely my fault. However, when I came to edit the second hour, I realized that Ben and I had spent so long talking about other things other than marketing, this meant that the second part of the interview would be considerably shorter. So thanks to Ben, who agreed to step to another call, so we were able to make a slightly longer interview. As a result of this, there's a difference in sound between the two interviews. The second chat with Ben was absolutely fascinating, and I really hope you'll enjoy it. Before we get to that interview, I'd just like to go over some of the articles that caught my eye on ethical marketing news recently. At the Hydrogen Wave Global Online Forum, Hyundai presented its plans to popularise hydrogen by 2040 through the introduction of new technologies and mobility solutions in transportation and other industrial sectors. The group's central target to fully apply its commercial vehicle lineup with fuel cells by 2028 will make it the first global automaker to realise such ambitions for commercial vehicle transportation and will further help facilitate the transition to true sustainable mobility. As I record this, we're just in the final days of COP26, and it feels like initiatives like like Hyundai's can only be a good thing. We've seen a lot of talk from automakers on electric cars. So it's really interesting to see one pushing themselves towards hydrogen as a fuel source. The vision for Hyundai Motor Group is that by 2040, hydrogen energy will be used not only for transportation, but also be applied to wider areas of industry and sectors. The group aims to make hydrogen energy available to everyone, everything and everywhere. On the 19th of September, Tottenham Hotspur, partnering with Sky, were able to make their fixture against Chelsea at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium completely carbon neutral. The match was supported by COP26 and the Premier League and was branded hashtag Game Zero. This was achieved with all direct emissions being reduced as much as possible and the remainder being offset through natural projects to remove emissions from the atmosphere. The club Sky and the UK government wanted the game to raise awareness of the threat of climate change and inspire football fans to make simple changes that would help reduce a carbon footprint. With so many initiatives being showcased over the past few weeks, it's really great to see the Premier League and Tottenham Hotspur in particular getting involved in this. The COP26 president-designate Alok Sharma said, climate change affects every aspect of our lives, including the sports that we love to watch and play. We can all take steps to help protect the planet for future generations, including in major sporting events. And I think that's very true. I think that's one of those things where I think it is really good to see these changes being made in things that we recognize and things that we see every day. We also heard some really great news from the Charities Aid Foundation. The CAF is a UK-based foundation that works with private philanthropists, businesses, individuals and government in the UK, US and Canada to send funds to charities working across hundreds of causes around the world. The trustees report for 2020-2021 revealed that donations rose by 43% or more than £300 million with funds entrusted to the Charities Aid Foundation topping £1 billion for the first time. As a result, tens of thousands of charities in more than 100 countries have been supported to deliver lasting benefits in communities around the world. It's great to see people still giving to charity in a time which for many people have been very difficult financially. Probably because of the influence of COP26, a lot of the stories I'm talking about today have a very strong environmental theme. This is one about the University of Cambridge leading a team developing a simulator to accelerate the path to net zero flight. Cambridge University announced the launch of the Aviation Impact Accelerator, an international group of experts in aerospace, economics, policy and climate science who are building an interactive evidence-based simulator to enable exploration of scenarios for achieving net-zero flight. Similarly to the Hyundai story, if we want to become a net-zero population, we really are going to need to tackle transportation problem. International flight is obviously a big issue with regards to carbon. There are various sustainable aviation fuel types that are being researched out there and it feels like this will be a huge step forward for the industry and potentially the planet. So it makes sense to go on to a story about A.P. Muller Maersk, who will introduce the first in a groundbreaking series of eight large ocean-going container vessels capable of being operated on carbon neutral methanol. The vessels will be built by Hyundai Heavy Industries and will have a nominal capacity of approximately 16,000 containers. The agreement with Hyundai Heavy Industries includes an option for four additional vessels in 2025. The series will replace older vessels, generating annual CO2 emission savings of around 1 million tons. Commercially truly carbon neutral corporation. As an industry first, the vessels will offer Maersk customers truly carbon neutral transportation at scale on the high seas. Again, it's interesting to see Hyundai involved with this. More than half of Merck's 200 largest customers have set or are in the process of setting ambitious science-based or zero-carbon targets for the supply chains. This means in order to reach a lot of these targets, things like transportation is going to be a big factor. Maersk has also identified its partners to produce green fuel for its first vessel to operate on carbon-neutral methanol. So that's Reintegrate, a subsidiary of the Danish renewable energy company European Energy. So Reintegrate in European Energy will establish a new Danish facility to produce approximately 10,000 tonnes of carbon-neutral e-methanol that Maersk's first vessel with the ability to operate will consume annually. It's also great to see that these initiatives by people like Maersk and Hyundai have the ability to help create and bolster a new eco-sector. This one's maybe a bit closer to home to us marketers. FCB Inferno has decided it's time that someone explained what all the weird and wonderful language thrown around in the advertising industry actually means. So they've introduced AdLingo, a fun online dictionary to help explain ad industry jargon to young people entering the industry. It's interesting because as marketers, there is a lot of jargon around marketing and advertising. And I think you tend to pick them up as you go along. But in some cases, you are never taught them. This was the case for junior creatives Amy Bland and Sasha Burke. When they started their first job at FCB Inferno in January 2020, the pair began writing out a list of the strange language that they came across in briefs, team discussions and other client meetings and began finding simple ways to remember them. Sasha said, We soon realised this must be a very common problem for people just starting out in the advertising industry and decided we'd like to share our learnings with everyone else in our position. This just feels like a really great initiative because I think it's important that when people come into the industry that they don't feel overwhelmed, you're learning a lot of new stuff and there is a lot of jargon. There's a lot to learn when you enter the industry and as we discussed with Ben, it's a really exciting time to do it and I think this just sounds like a really good initiative. I think anything that helps people when they come into the industry and has the benefit of being a little bit of fun can only be a good thing. And that's the news that's caught my eye over the last little bit. Thank you for listening. Well, welcome to the
1: Ethical Marketing uh, News Podcast.
0: And now it's time for the second part of our interview with Ben Downing. What's your thoughts on the marketing industry's sort of stance and take on disinformation?
1: So this is a this is really interesting area where we have to have quite a, a muscular response and approach. We have a, a responsibility. I, I think it's worth thinking about history of, of, of disinformation and some of the stories that have come around uh, about marketing and media investment actually funding misinformation information sites so my first response to this is it matters where we advertise and we have a responsibility to think about that my second response is, is going to be we have a responsibility to the wider media ecosystem but we'll we'll come on to that i guess let's look at the history around this so i'm going to mention some resources and i, I know you'll link listeners to um to the links and the notes on on, on these um, so the, the global disinformation index uh, back in December, uh, back in December of last year, published out pushed out a bit of research, and they do this quite frequently. And it was about popular brands actually appearing next to anti-vax disinformation. And the the really concerning thing is, uh, and I'm going to mention the the brands because they're not brands. We all friends and competitors. Work with they're Interestingly, media brands, uh, Yahoo and Bloomberg. We're actually running ads against sites like the washington standards the federalist and uh, zero edge now say what you like about sort of section 230 free speech clearly there was anti-vax disinformation on those sites by an agreed uh, definition of uh, vaccine safety so kind of like how did this happen and this happened through the automated buying the advertising technology we touched on the last podcast so Ad tech is a, is a way of, of using technology to, to execute buys. And the problem here is left unpiloted by a person. So without a human taking the decisions, taking ethical decisions on what's right to do, this content is quite sticky, it's quite effective, it's quite engaging, right? You know, lies, uh, lies and misinformation can be. So what happened is because it was engaging information is the ads ended up there because the machine was kind of able to run. And um, the uh, you know the New York Times um, has also done some uh, some brilliant coverage on this as well. So you know it's not just kind of civil society and agency groups and uh, and us us sort of uh, uh, more policy kind of wonks um, sort of picking up on this. So we have a huge problem to make sure that we understand these systems that we're using to place ads and so we have the right level of control in there. So I guess when we're when we're tackling misinformation, when we're thinking about misinformation, the most important thing is to, you know, as, as the can say, or as we say at the can, to have the, the ethics uh, of advertising or ethics rather catch up with the modern state of advertising technology. So to understand why those levers are being pulled and not not run our ads without human control. So. What can a smaller brand or any brand dipping their toe in the water do? Well, we actually spend quite a lot of time kind of thinking about those controls in the platforms. And I'm not, going to, I'm not going to name specific platforms or, or brands or advertisers beyond the, the sites and the brands that I spoke to earlier, because so I don't think, you know, sort of blame game is helpful. We're all educating ourselves towards making better and more ethical, conscious decisions in the media that's um, that's placed. Well, the first thing is, and I say this without genuinely no no intent to sort of sell the the reason a, a media buying agency exists, but the you know the first thing is you can you can use a media buying agency. One of our core responsibilities is to uh, do good work, effective work for for clients, but also um, ensure that their ads are being executed as effectively as possible, but also safely as possible. But what does that mean as a marketing practitioner? What does that mean as a marketeer? So. In terms of uh, a smaller brand, a growing brand that might not want a full service agency, that might be executing directly on a platform, uh, we do have some advice about how to kind of avoid misinformation. And, you know, this misinformation wasn't only anti-vaccine, it isn't. and is anti-climate denial. In the US, there's a lot of misinformation about the election. All of this misinformation is a threat. So what can you do as as a smaller brand? If you're working with a, uh, you're not working with a full service agency, but you're working with a specialist who's executing, say, performance buying for you, I would ask to do two things. I would say, one, can I see the the list of approved uh, sites that I'm buying on? Can I see the list of uh, approved properties? Um, And I'd also like to see what is your approach to filtering for disinformation? So how do you understand sites that are unsafe, not only across disinformation, but more generally? Do you rely on a standard brand safety technology, a taxonomy, which we'll come on to in a moment? Or do you have a a more uh, curated version, perhaps with input from GDI, Global Disinformation Index, or a company like NewsGuard are are really interesting. They do some some great work around identifying um, safe, reputable um, and trusted news organizations. Um, now, if you're executing your buying yourself, um, you, you're, you're logging directly into a platform. I think there's a, a few points here. One, um, although, uh, so I think, the, you know, the first thing is think about where you are in the marketing funnel. Um, and again, we're going to go very marketing, but it's important because it's the, it's the sort of executing marketing ethically. Think about where you are in the funnel. So if you're at the very bottom and you're kind of tipping your toe into display or video ads. It might not be right for you if you're if you're really harvesting demand and kind of trying to present at the bottom of the funnel it might not be the right format and if you are buying say on a cost per click basis which is uh, problematic you may be incentivizing a certain type of action that's it's not not necessarily useful to your end goal but also pushes these platforms in a certain direction um so that's you know one of the first things is just be mindful of the kpi be mindful of what you're bidding for um, and the second thing is, I would say, don't be afraid of block lists and also don't be afraid of inclusion lists. So targeting specific sites it can be get out of building, but there's lots of free resources out there to, to help understand sites that, that should definitely not ever be uh, where a brand is showing up. And, you know, we continue, of course, as a, as a conversation which we'll come to about platform controls and movement. Google's doing some really interesting stuff leading in this space. The third thing is, I'd say, category controls in platforms can be misleading. So I'll give you an example. You know, blanket blocking news won't always pick up in misinformation sites and can actually risk just, you know, demonetizing news outlets. Uh, there's some great tweets and, you know, I, I follow some fantastic accounts. Dr. Augustine Fu of Fu Analytics does some, some really good work generally in in the space around analytics attribution and, and, and the world of, of advertising. You know, he, um, he has a fantastic series of tweets around brand safety technology actually uh, uh, blocking coverage on, on, you know, really reputable websites. So, you know, that's the danger of using. These kind of category controls, and we'll we'll get into that and the worries a bit more. In the last podcast, we talked about how these ad tech solutions can have unintended consequences. Uh, I don't want to kind of go over that content again, but we could we could take a, a deeper dive into into that if it's interesting. Because I, I, for for those of us that are executing buys wherever it is in a directly in an agency or in any way on behalf of of our clients or brands, um, we should maybe think about the the nuances and possibilities but also dangers of those controls.
0: On the last podcast, you talked a bit about the demonetization of news. Can you tell us a bit more about that?
1: Yeah, sure. So we joined Protect Our Press months ago. Uh, that's a US initiative, but it seeks to really focus on local news and high quality news, local news specifically, which is so important to, to our democracy. We we talked last time and we briefly alluded to um, uh, demonetisation of news during COVID. This kind of led to a bit of a re- Reevaluation in the industry, and you know, my view personally is this reevaluation needs to go further and faster of how we're using keyword blocking technologies and their understanding of context and content. So I think it comes down to an understanding of this concept of brand safe and, and brand safety. So should we be allowing technology to define what's brand unsafe and what's not? You know, my background is in sort of programmatic and technology and app tech and all that gubbins is the sort of real kind of like piping of how stuff gets done is I think we have a real responsibility to take a look at those definitions and who's and who or what is making so machines I think fundamentally misunderstand some of the connection between context and content so our you know our, our chief strategy officer here how about Greg James talks about um, martech meiosis quite often he kind of coined that phrase a few years ago and that's really instrumental for us as marketeers. Because it's kind of like Martech, marketing technology in the broadest sense. All the technology we use now for modern marketing can give us a bit of meiosis We kind of say, well, actually, you know what? The machine, the machine will do it, the machine will do it. And brand safety and demonetization of news is, a, is an example of that. There's some really good work uh, that was done at the beginning of the year in terms of looking at how uh, news is being systematically demonetized. So I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to name any particular companies or brands or, or technologies, because I think this is a something we're all looking at. And I know people are doing brilliant work and, and companies are doing brilliant work here. But where we're seeing and hearing 36 to 40% of bids received from advertisers to place an ad on news sites actually just stopped on home pages of major news sites. And it was because of, uh, you know, it was finding something in, in the content that, that wasn't really working. You know a classic example of this is a you know, crossword and the uh, the cooking section of a news site being demonetized because would you care to take a guess at why uh, why the why the cooking section of a website might be blocked might might have been stopped by these technologies guessing recipes straight on and in those recipes alcohol so you know some of these very not nuanced ways of kind of understanding context and content and also kind of hard lists to say don't don't go there is really concerning you know all of these major brands were supporting this i remember last year like vice media did some research after the the tragic killing of george floyd and they found that their coverage of the the protests was actually monetized at a rate of i think it was 57 6 58 percent nearly 60 percent lower than other news content now, things have moved on since then and advertisers have made some brilliant changes. But, you know, that was a shocking moment. And I, I don't think we have kind of finished that, which is if we are, if we believe we're on news content that's trusted, engaging and influential, you know, in New York Times in the US, for instance, The Guardian here, should we be demonetizing that media? Um, no. So, you know, we need, to, we need to think carefully about that and, and ask whether some of these, technologies are doing more harm than good and um, could be could be actually removed there's a you, you know there's a real need to kind of look again at this
0: you talked previously then about certain phrases lgbtq plus etc being demonetized is this something then that is still going on
1: so there has been change and i think you know change needs to come faster but across the across the industry um, are are terms like this still appearing on on advertiser block lists um when I speak for the advertisers that I work with and we work with, no, and you know we we hope to to push that forward. We're not claiming to lead the industry by any sense. This is a again a group. You know everyone's moving forward uh, and hopefully at the same fast pace. But are there still problematic exclusions in place? Yes, I mean I'm you know I'm seeing evidence from uh, from the industry generally that. Brands are still choosing to exclude stuff like, you know, ca- category exclusions, say, for creators. Um, so some of those exclusions are quite, quite problematic. My belief is, and this, this is going to sound like Sophistry, and I'm, I'm squirming out of difficult questions to you, but I'm, I'm not. I'm trying to answer it as honestly as possible. I think the, we need to have a debate, and, you know, in, in, in the same structured and an amazing way that, say, Adnet Zero have. In terms of a framework for moving to inclusive advertising in the broadest sense, right? With the technology and the practice of media, we've talked so much about exclusions and block lists and stopping. Actually, if we move towards inclusions, it would make things easier in, in the broadest sense. So I hope I hope I at least tried to answer the question.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was listening to something this week actually and it was talking about whilst we all try to do better in terms of race and sometimes sexuality, we are missing still very much things like people with disabilities are not are certainly not being included within in mainstream media.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I think I think sort of talking about consciously investing in creators, consciously targeting coverage of you know quality news coverage, and moving towards the media that matters. So I think there's. There's a real opportunity, and like that's why I'm so grateful to you to, to come on, and also for the work you're doing is to kind of like is to join up these conversations, so to stop having them in silos, and to say, well, actually, there's a broader role for kind of inclusive advertising here, and that by nature is ethical, ethical marketing. But yeah, I think you make a really important point. Like, there's these new areas being opened up. There's work still to be done, and there's a conscious need to kind of to move together, uh, you know, on a, on a bigger and a wider movement.
0: We're getting close to COP26 now. What are your thoughts on disinformation with regards to climate change?
1: COP26 is obviously huge on the agenda at the moment, and that's brought climate disinformation into into focus. Now, we are starting to see some really exciting platform-led policies. So when I say platform, I mean someone who executes media. You you sort of dial in and, and you use them to place the ads. So most exciting in this place was Google, actually. You know, Google... Um, banning ads on content, including YouTube videos with false uh, claims about climate change. And that this is a huge decision that's come through from the ads team at Google. So it stops websites or YouTube creators to earn ad money via Google for content that quote, contradicts well-established scientific consensus around the existence and causes of climate change and it, you know this has been a sort of drumbeat from the from the industry from consumers and from civil society groups to say that there must be a uh, you know there must be a change for this one of the things that one of the responsibilities we have with marketers to do good do ethical advertising is to ensure that we're not funding that kind of content so hopefully the the consumer pressure and news around cop26 will will start to uh, um, push through some of these immediate changes
0: and what's your thoughts with regards to Facebook on this front?
1: So that is a that is a very good question. Obviously, you know we through the civil society groups uh, and industry groups we're, we're part of Conscious Network GOM, part of the WFA World Federation of Advertisers. We we continue to push for for platform controls. You know, I understand, of course, like. I think everyone does. There's an algorithmic challenge. Uh, These are huge platforms and and having machines understand that content is challenging. What I will say is that the Can the Conscious Ad Network did some really good work in terms of an open letter to the CEOs of of all the social platforms, uh, including Facebook, on racism in football. And look out for a similar letter on climate change, where we will all as an industry continue to uh, make suggestions and advocate for positive change.
0: It looks like the industry is really tackling it now. It's something that's become uppermost in, in quite a lot of the bigger agencies' minds.
1: Yeah, I think you know, without sort of being too arrogant about our own importance, you know, our job as marketeers is to to, to advocate for change. And the, the work that the ads net zero uh, coalition are actually doing is is kind of an example of that, led by the advertiser association. So this gives a, a real way and framework to, to tackle the climate emergency for for advertising and again i know you you'll kindly include this on the link to the show notes to like this is a, a really important initiative i i'm not going to kind of review it in in depth because i think it will be great to have a, a you know guest on the show from from adnet zero to talk through it in depth but the the adnet zero action plan you know made up of four action points action one you know, just, just getting your house in order in terms of business operations. Uh, action two, curbing emissions from advertising productions. Action three, curb, which we're working on and done, done lots of work on. One of my colleagues, Tony, in the UK has, has been brilliant in, in part of the team uh, across many brands uh, that, that are leading this. Action three, curbing emissions from media planning, buying and distribution. And action four, curbing emissions through awards and events. Uh, so uh, giving a real framework for change. And actually, as an industry, I think we're stepping up here. Right. And that's not just because I want to make myself feel better about the climate emergency. There's a framework for change. You know, Action 5 for me is really, really interesting. Harnessing advertising to power to support consumer behavior change. And this speaks to, you know, one of my mentioned in in the last podcast. One of the things that I'm so proud of the team here for, and I absolutely can't take credit for the work, but I can hopefully promote it a bit, is the sustainability marketplace, which is to say. Let's actually give advertisers an ability to lean in on coverage of the climate crisis. The Guardian's doing some some fantastic work on this. And I guess that kind of leads us back to where we were with misinformation, because just as we want to make sure that we're not targeting or or supporting misinformation, there's also an opportunity to to think about the effects, some of the choices that we have, some of the less conscious choices we make, have on on, on where where we place ads.
0: Have you got any advice for small companies, people starting up, your take on, I suppose, ethical ad buying and ethics within your industry? Yeah,
1: such an important question. We talked in the last podcast about how there aren't enough resources out there, but you're building you're building one important resource, and there are there are more. The civil society groups like like Can, the Institute of Advertising Ethics, are doing some really interesting work over in DC, and there's lots of uh, lots of stuff percolating up from you know the AAA, the Advertising Association, the trade bodies, but also the local the local bodies like the local I, you know local IABs and and all the rest of it. I think the my advice would be the frameworks are out there and they also need input. So please, please, please like get involved. And again, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to credit my colleagues far more than myself, like the work, say Tony, who who runs part of our strategy team here in the UK, done, you know, on Adnet Zero, across brilliant colleagues from across the network, you know, so many people are involved in that. We're only just one part of it, Um, is, uh, is get involved. The second thing I would think is the moment that, as a performance marketeer, and may I address the performance marketeers directly for a moment, you know, I, I still very much am one. The quest for performance and metric isn't harmed by ethics, and we know that. And I think you know some of the people that I've seen do brilliant work in this space is to pursue performance, pursue efficiency, uh, but actually do uh, found that ethical marketing and ethical media is a force for good. I'll give you an example of that, which is uh, going out into talking about inclusive advertising, going out into spaces we we couldn't or we wouldn't or ordinarily advertise in because it's not something that the lever exists easily in the system or something we have time to kind of think about the, the targeting parameter or something as prosaic as the site list. It does work. You know, we're in a search for, for reach and, and share of voice and share of mind. And getting that getting out there does actually work from the performance perspective. So I'm excited to see performance marketeers doing work in this space. It's
0: great to get a conversation on a kind of slightly... I say, and a, and a kind of more an executive you're in an executive role, it's really useful to have that conversation because often a lot of the people that we talk to are people who are actually out with the industry looking in, yeah. but who are working inside the industry. So, having someone from, yeah, it's the a pleasure to give you
1: is- perspectives. And as I said, you know, I think it's, it's really interesting because many of those people are very um, generous with their time as well. You know, they're generous to, and I think we do recognize that, they're generous in that they're outside trying to improve the industry. So, it's nice to be kind of inside. Um, working, uh, you know, all working in the same way.
0: As we were talking about them, the IEA or the Institute of Advertising Ethics has recently announced a professional certification program, and I believe you know a bit about this. Can you tell me of your experience and involvement in this?
1: I recently went through the the inaugural, the first certification program for for the IEA the Institute of Advertising Ethics. I was part of the the inaugural cohort, and. That, I think, is a really interesting development and a valuable one for for the industry. So I guess a little about the Institute of Advertising Ethics themselves. They're a group who have created the first and only ethical certification for advertising industry practitioners. It's designed by a non-partisan body. Uh, including market participants, government, uh, legal officials, and uh, and actually consumer advocates. The certification itself will be rolled out more broadly. Um, It's going to be called the Certified Ethical Advertising Executive. Uh, You'll be able to call yourself a a -A CEAE, having completed the certification. But it's really interesting, is it kind of examining the ways that ethical considerations translate into business decisions and provides I guess some principles and reference points for decision- making and advertising we've we've obviously you know spent quite a lot of work and, and we, we've touched on that in the in the podcast sort of building out our ethical practice but it was quite interesting to see certainly you know in their framework the, the personal case for, for ethics in in advertising aligning I think with our our ethical principles of, uh, of um, preference you know sort of one make sure you're not doing any harm and two Try to do good. It's something we're we're really interested in. We're working with the IAE at the, at the moment, and are actually hoping to input the certification itself um, within our, our Havas University. Um, so, working with the IAE at the moment to to work that out, and it's um, it, it's definitely something that that's needed. So, you know, hoping to see this develop and uh you know and continue it's funny because you know in in law and accounting there are these ethics programs um and there aren't in lots of industries but it's really really cool to see that in media and 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 really useful and interesting opportunity so the program itself is open today, and really anyone involved in the ad profession—so clients, agencies, as well as um, you know the whole supply chain, data, technology, and media uh, vendors for for sort of modern advertising um, placement—and it's worthwhile. You know, we obviously have our ethical frameworks. I touched on a moment ago that that ladder down into how we use data, equitable allocation of. Of advertising budgets and you know touching on some of those those needs for, for for full transparency which you know we've without talking my own book too much we've we've sort of led in uh, Habas, um but um it's it's a really useful framework for starting out and it's valuable so the process is is, is actually just self-administered it's conducted online uh, and there is actually a test, there, there are tests at the end of each module, and uh, you're tested on each each module and component. So the curriculum, I think, is, is going to be updated over time. Um, we're, we're hoping to work with the IE on that and um, uh, other members um, as they come in. The COO, the Chief Operating Officer of the Institute of Advertising Ethics, Andrew Sussman, he has a really nice quote, you know, he was asked by Joe Mandisi over at Media Post, uh, you, you know why? Why really begin with ethics? And, and Andrew said the answer is that there are plenty of technical certifications out there for advancing the techniques, tools, and methods of advertising practitioners. However, advertising is the virtually the only profession without an independent ethical standards or ethical certification. And there's no reference point. So, you know, I, I guess we've done a lot of that work internally to build that reference point, but we, we need something wider across the industry. Um, so, yeah, really, really interesting, um, the, the work that Andrew and the team are doing, and we we hope to be part of it. And we're, we're proud of the engagement so far. I would say to your uh, listeners, it is a US certification, but there is a concessionary rate for students who want to undertake this, which is if you're not part of an institution, but you, you have an interest uh, or are coming into the industry, there's a concessionary rate, and we can... And we can probably link to that in the
0: notes what are you working on at the moment
1: yeah sure so I'm really excited to see the uh, the bipoc connections minority voices launch in the US. Um, I'm working on our sustainability uh, marketplace rolling out into more countries uh, that's really exciting because we want to we want to give brands a way to support um, support coverage of the climate crisis. Uh, which is 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 really really important. I'm also working on and continuing to think about the importance of news and high quality news, and how we make sure that some of these intermediary technologies aren't interfering with with monetization of that. Um, personal passion product of my uh, 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 personal passion project of mine um, on the podcasting side is is minority voices in in podcasting. I'm an example of another a white middle aged man uh, droning into the microphone so um
0: yeah know that uh, feeling <laughs>
1: yeah uh, and then then finally um the thing that i'm really interested in is uh, local local press so you know giving away for for advertisers and brands to support local press and you know continue to work with my brilliant colleague Seema I'll give her a shout out who runs our insight team and department um, on some of our proof points which we're increasingly gathering you know i kind of referenced some of those earlier today
0: Brilliant. It all sounds like uh, things are moving quickly anyway.
1: It's, it feels like it's uh, it's 2022 already. How long have we got left or oh, not very yeah, not, not very long left of the year. Well when you're you know when you're genuinely doing something you feel kind of passionate about and is important you know I've got a sense of mission and there's a sense of mission with a lot of people in the agency because of our position
0: around this. What have you been enjoying over the last month in terms of anything, podcasts, books, TV shows? Before
1: uh, we started recording, you and I went off on a slightly lengthy um, divergence around VR, which we both... Quite into. Although your host, listeners, is um, significantly more advanced than I am, is doing some really interesting things. I've just been kind of like more passively experiencing it. I've been playing a lot of um, Super Hot um, on the Oculus. I got into Half Life Alex, which is the VR game from Steam, which is amazing. So I've been spending a lot of time kind of in the metaverse. Um, I'm reading a lot about, um, doing a lot of research and reading a lot about decentralized applications, decentralized finance, and blockchain. It's fascinating, but also potentially worrying from a an energy consumption um, perspective so you know some interesting things going on in ethereum uh, around attempts to solve that and um, my more sort of prosaic and chill lean back media in the moment uh, i'm really enjoying into the night on netflix which is a belgian series so uh, so check that out
0: you not heard about that that's obviously one to to keep an eye on but it interesting. we we'll quickly briefly talk about Marketing in VR, seeing as it's being brought up, because it's something that we are obviously both quite passionate about. Yeah. There's a real future technology for, for us marketers. What are your thoughts on that?
1: I think this is going to be a, a, a real, I mean, disclosure, you and I are both VR enthusiasts. So, of course, we're, we're kind of going to have our own slightly subjective view. I would say if you are, and I'm, I'm stealing the way you 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 put it earlier, so forgive me for this, but if you're if you're not sure about VR or you're on the fence um, and you don't think it's going to be very important, get a headset and have the experience because the experience is extraordinary. And I really think it's going to be a paradigm shift and it's going to create some huge challenges, both in the creative sense, like the experiences themselves. But how do we how do we connect brands and people? We, we probably don't connect them in VR in the same way with kind of more passive experiences or, you know, brands showing up in an ad space. Um, the experience or experiential nature of VR is going to be quite, quite fantastic. What are your um, what, do, what are your what are your thoughts on, on where, we're, where we're heading to with VR and,
0: and opportunities
1: for, for brands?
0: It's Something we briefly spoke about again. It does sound like we had a massively long conversation before we start, and we did.
1: We're going to put it in the. We're going to put it in the director's cut, right?
0: Special features. Special features. Yeah. One of the things we did discuss is the potential for AR specific. Or yeah. different Marketing yeah. Uh, campaigns, you're beginning to see it coming forward as a real force, and I think AR and VR, as VR become more usable, I guess the the day that we can plug your VR set into the front of your computer or hook it up to your computer in some way and go to a website and run the VR from the website will be the day that I think everything will change.
1: Yeah, everything will change. This this sort of like frictionless, you know, the new version of the web, and to your point about AR, which yeah, AR is going to be the the critical kind of bridge, the critical use case is—it's really fascinating to see Snap kind of going mainstream in VR with their commerce solution. So, you know, that's out there, that's now. Marketeers are using it, so it's it's coming and it's coming. You know, back to what what you said about marketing, what we said about marketing—it moves fast. It's coming.
0: It does, and I think yeah, within five years, the certainly AR will be something that most agencies will be thinking of as a potential uh, yeah. Um, yeah, especially local companies because when you're working within a local framework you can do some really interesting things yeah so it's definitely worth keeping an eye on that i think and but yeah but i totally agree if you've not used vr it's not what you think it is i think that's the number one thing it's not what it used to be it's not that thing it's a completely immersive experience now and whether you want to be a jedi or you know whether you want to stand on the bridge of the starship enterprise or if you want to go and kill zombies you know it's all catered yeah. for, that it. it's all uh, an amazing way of losing an hour or two. And uh,
1: it it, it, and- it really is. And some of the more sort of passive stuff, like the the flying through the ISS, um, or or actually just med. I've, this is a, a bit kind of geeky, but I've kind of got quite into meditation in VR. It's a very interesting application.
0: I think the applications are incredible, and entertainment in all sorts of things. And I think, as I say, marketers, I just hope. That marketers won't be late to the party which uh I'm, I'm slightly worried that some of them will be
1: yeah me too and i i think this is going to be a, a it's going to be there is a like just like in consumer vr there's that friction because of the hardware challenge which is you have to buy the hardware and you have to get used to it that's the difficulty is that if you think about the the difficulty of uh, a new technology adoption curve um on uh, you know on the web on web 2.0 it was less because Yes, you had to have the computer and you had to have someone who could program an API, but there wasn't that intrinsic friction. So that's going to be really interesting because I think the consumer friction really mirrors the business friction. Um, So it's going to be a challenge.
0: Thanks so much, Ben, for taking part, not just once, but twice. If you've enjoyed it or found it interesting, please hit subscribe. And that's it for today's podcast. Thank you very much for listening. This podcast was edited by Stuart Mitchell. The music was by Joe McCafferty. We look forward to seeing you for the next podcast.
1: I'm enjoying it. I think we should do another four hours. We could do like, we could do an extended sort of director's cut of the podcast.